0: Well, good morning, Alliance family. I so long for the day that we can be back together uh, in this uh, room, uh, worshiping together. Uh, I, I love the worship team uh, leading us, and I'm sure that it's wonderful uh, in, your, uh, in your homes. But I just have to tell you, I was just out here crying uh, as we were singing those songs. I'm deeply thankful for them, for them being here and uh, serving us in this way. This is now our third week worshiping together virtually, that is by live streaming. What is interesting is over the past two weeks, we've had more views of our worship service online than we have people who attend our church. I mean, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, It means more people are tuning into the ministry uh, of Alliance uh, than normal. That's wonderful, but... Uh, that also means I need to explain briefly the way we do things around here. We are Alliance Bible Fellowship, and Bible is our middle name. We're, we're, we're not embarrassed about that. We are passionately committed to biblical truth. In fact, one of our core values is biblical authority. We joyfully submit ourselves to the truth of the Bible, even when it's uncomfortable or flies in the face of culture. I often say it this way, at Alliance we want to be a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, word-saturated church. We want everything that we do to be grounded squarely on the foundation of Scripture. And so, one of the ways we commit to biblical authority is to study through books of the Bible together. Meaning we don't ordinarily, uh, you won't ordinarily, ordinarily find us picking some topic that we want to discuss and selecting verses that support that topic. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. we just rather go verse by verse through books of the Bible to- together. And so, for example, we are currently studying through the book of 1 Peter. We started that well before the pandemic. I think this is sermon number 20 or 21, something like that. Now, studying through the Bible verse by verse has a number of advantages, not the least of which are the following two. First, we view passages in their context. That is, we look at verses in the context of the verses before and the verses after, as well as the context of the entire book. And, and secondly, it, it forces us to study uh, the whole Bible, and not just passages that we want to cover. In fact, it keeps us from skipping difficult passages or passages that we wouldn't normally choose. I say all of this because the passage before us today desperately needs those two advantages. That is, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for, that we are looking at the passage today in its context to aid in its understanding. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't pick this passage if it was left to me. This is an extremely difficult text. Not for what it says. In fact, we're going to find the first verse is quite glorious. It's the verses that follow which are notoriously difficult to interpret. What in the world is is Peter saying? For example, one of my commentaries said, this passage in 1 Peter is the one most debated and written about. From the earliest days of the church, it has been understood in different ways. Even among today's interpreters, this passage has the reputation for being perhaps the most difficult in the New Testament. Yay! So here I am in our third live stream teaching what many uh, consider the most difficult. This should be fun. In fact, The reformer, the Martin Luther, smart guy, said of this passage, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Are you kidding me? I mean, can I just skip it? Actually, I don't want to. You see, our commitment to the Word of God impels us to study learn and grow from even this difficult passage, I I would say further, studying it within its context will not only help us understand it, but but I believe it will deeply encourage us. So read it with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. A a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There are some very intriguing questions that no doubt come to mind regarding these verses. Namely, who are these spirits in prison? When and where did Jesus proclaim to them? And and what did he proclaim? And how how does Peter jump to Noah and the ark? And how does this baptism now save us? If you can readily answer any or all of those questions, you are way ahead of Martin and me. <laughs> and many of you have heard the Apostles' Creed, which, was, which most surmise was composed in the late first or early second centuries. I say surmise because we know it likely dates to that period, but we don't have any written copies from them. You see, Christianity from its earliest days was so opposed that they didn't, they, they suggest they didn't write it out, they simply recited it in their gatherings. But it is a great summation of Christian doctrine. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Did you see that? Many modern versions, and in fact, some of those early versions that we do have, don't have the descended into hell part. (laughs) What does that mean? Where did it come from? Well, it comes from our text today. It's one of the many interpretations of the passage. But here's the question for you to think about for a moment Did Jesus descend into hell between his death and resurrection? If so, for what purpose? You see, context is incredibly important in this passage. Yes, there are lots of interpretations, a wide variety actually, but as we jump in, let me give you the overall flow of the text. Remember the context of the book. Peter is writing to suffering believers. They are being persecuted for their faith. He writes to encourage them. In chapter 1, he reminds them of this great salvation they have. He reminds them of their living hope. He goes into the beginning of chapter 2, but then in chapter 2, he gets to the main body of the letter. the, The beautiful, live beautiful lives, he says, so that even if they slander you or they malign you, they will glorify God on the day that he visits. I suggested on the day that he visits them for salvation. And then he says, to live a beautiful life, he encourages us to live, to, uh, to, uh, to live lives of joyful submission, even though it may cost us. This launched him into the main purpose for his writing, encouragement to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, back in chapter 2, he cited Jesus as the example of the just sufferer, that is, one who suffered unjustly. He serves as our example that we should follow in his steps, also suffering for doing good. He gets to chapter 3 and again cites the suffering of Jesus, but he expands infinitely on that. He tells us why Jesus suffered. Can I suggest to you that one phrase in verse 18 is one of the most important in the entire Bible? Bible. Now, I'll talk about that in a moment. So Jesus suffered for us. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. I think that's the resurrection. In which spiritual realm, he went and preached to these spirits in prison, proclaiming his victory after suffering. That's where Noah comes in. We also, like righteous Noah and the other seven with him, also suffered through a worldwide flood, But, but God delivered him just like he'll deliver you. And after Jesus suffered, was dead and buried, he was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, and by doing so, his victory over evil was proclaimed and complete. So he's saying, hold on, your victory through the resurrection of Christ is coming. I believe that's the point of the text. It's a great text in three parts which form our outline. We're going to see the suffering of Jesus, verse 18, the resurrection of Jesus, proclaiming his victory, and and then the ascension of Jesus, subjecting or subjugating his enemies. Now, notice that. We could summarize those three great points with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, all for his glorious victory and incredibly for our good. Look at it with me, starting with the suffering of Jesus in verse 18. Notice verse 18 begins with the conjunction for. And that, that points us back to verse 17 where he has just said, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So he has just called us to suffering for good, say, saying that God, Wills it so. Now, how can we do that? That doesn't sound like much fun. Sign me up for Suffering 101. How, how can we do that? For Christ also died or, or suffered by dying for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Once again, just like chapter 2, Peter holds um, out our, our, our Jesus as our example But his example of suffering is infinitely different than ours because of what it accomplishes. For Christ also suffered, ultimately dying once for all. This is a clear statement of Jesus' suffering in our place. In theological terms, this is called the vicarious substitutionary atonement. He died for us and our sins, You see, the Scripture is clear. He had no sins of his own for which to die, but he died for us in our place as our substitute doing something we could never have done for ourselves. This is what Peter means when he says Jesus died for our sins. One time, by the way, it's not like those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament which happened over and over and over But the book of Hebrews tells us could never deal with sin once and for all. All of those sacrifices simply pointed to Jesus. He died once and accomplished for all time the salvation of all those who would believe in him. Hebrews says further, after dying once, he sat down. Mission accomplished at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So Christ died for sins once for all who would believe the just For the unjust. Will you think about that for just a moment? Just, perfect, holy Jesus. For unjust, imperfect, unholy sinners. This is the essence of the gospel. Isaiah 53 says it like this, Surely our griefs he himself bore, And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Jesus died for us. It's very interesting, if you look closely at verses 17 and 18... Peter tells us uh, to not suffer for doing wrong. Then in verse 18, there's a sense in which he said Jesus did just that. Oh, he didn't suffer for his own wrong, but he suffered for our wrong. You see, that's what sin is. Rebellion against a holy God and his perfect character. So Jesus died, the just for the unjust. I want to be very clear about this because this is the gospel. We are sinners and there is nothing we can do about our condition because we are unjust, unrighteous. Paul makes that clear in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not one. We have all rebelled against our holy God. You say but but, but wait, I didn't rebel. Actually you have by every act of sin which transgresses the very nature of God. And as a result, a holy and just, as a holy and just God, his, his wrath was rightly aimed our way. It is right for God to be angry at sin because it violates his very nature. Th- this is the bad news of the gospel But the good news is this. God did something about our miserable, lost condition. When there was nothing we could do, he stepped in and did it for us. In the person of his son Jesus, who took on flesh, lived a perfectly just life, a holy life, and did what we could not. And therefore, because he lived a perfect life, he didn't deserve to die. You see, he had done no wrong. The wages of sin is death, the scripture says. But he never sinned. So he did not deserve the payment or the wages of sin, death. But as Peter said in chapter 2, he took our sins in his body on the cross. Here, Peter says, The just died for, for us, the unjust. He died for our sins. Further, Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, if you surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus and believe in your heart what the rest of this text says today, namely that Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, you can be saved. Peter, in the very first message of the Christian Church, back in Acts chapter two, talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. The people were convicted of their sin, their sin which nailed them, uh, which nailed Jesus to the cross. Our sin, which nailed Jesus to the cross. And and they said to Peter, what must we do? And he said, repent, that is, confess your sin and turn from them and be baptized. We'll talk about that in a moment. And you will be saved. And so I want to ask you, have you done that? Have you repented and trusted in Jesus as the Son of God who died in your place for your sin, the just For you, the unjust, have you asked him to forgive you? Have you confessed him as Lord? If you have not, you can do that today. Now, again, you might sit there and think, "Now, wait just a minute. I'm a pretty good guy, and you might be." If we were, uh, if, if you're using the rest of us as the standard, you might be good compared to most everyone else. But we are not the standard. The holy, just God is. And we have violated His good and perfect nature. And so we need forgiveness provided through the work of Christ. But let me ask you another question. And that is this. To what end did Jesus die? Uh, To what ultimate end did Jesus die for sinners? What was this, the purpose of of Jesus dying for us? <laughs> and if you think about it, there are lots of benefits. I'm sure there are lots of things that are coming to mind right now. Lots of benefits of the gospel. We get the forgiveness of sin. Isn't that what you've been saying? You, we get the removal of guilt. We get the very righteousness of Christ. You see, he lived a perfect righteous life. We have not, and that is given or imputed to us. And so we get to escape the penalty of sin, namely punishment in hell forever. Instead, we get eternal life. We we gain an eternal inheritance. This is a pretty good list, isn't it? I mean, we get heaven as our home, streets of gold, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. But is that it? Is that the end for which Jesus died? Is this the ultimate hope of the gospel? What does our text say? This is what I suggested earlier is one of the most glorious phrases in the entire Bible. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that. (laughs) That's the purpose clause. This is why Jesus ultimately died for sinners, so that he might bring us to God. All those other benefits, they are simply necessary means to the end, the ultimate end of bringing us to God. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, opened the way for us to be reconciled to God, to come to God. This is the best part of the gospel, the ultimate end of the gospel. Are you ready? We get God. You know, every once in a while you'd be at a funeral or something like that and someone will talk about how grandma has really missed grandpa and I understand that I'm not trying to belittle that and it's so good that she gets to see him again. But, but is that the ultimate end of the gospel? I get to go to heaven and see the people that I miss? John Piper, pastor, theologian, written a number of books about 50 of them, wrote a book on this very topic called God is the Gospel. In it, he asks, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, and I'll throw in viruses, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And the answer is a resounding no. No. All of those other things are side benefits, but the best part of salvation is we get God. He redeems us. He reconciles us to himself. We get God. This is what I'm holding out to you today. John Piper writes further, What makes all the events of Good Friday and Easter, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, all the events of Good Friday and Easter and all the promises they secure good news is that they lead us to God. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He quotes our text. And when we get there, it is God himself who will satisfy our souls forever. Everything else in the gospel is meant to display God's glory and remove every obstacle in him, such as his wrath, and in us, such as our rebellion, so that we can enjoy him forever. God is the gospel. That is, he is what makes the good news good. Nothing less can make the gospel good news. God is the final and highest gift that makes the good news good. This is indeed good news. I want you to remember the context. In the midst of all of the suffering his readers were facing, this would have been incredibly good news. The gospel will bring you to God. And in the midst of all that we are facing, increased hostility, a planet that doesn't work right because it has been subjected to futility, natural disasters, disasters, hurricanes and tornadoes, viruses and the like. This is good news because we ultimately get delivered and we get God. There was a print, a painting, I guess, that went around Facebook some time ago entitled First Day in Heaven. Now now listen, I I don't know about all of the theological ramifications of the print, whether we will be hugging Jesus or bowing at his feet in holy reverence, but would you look at it for just a moment? I love the joy in this young lady's face as she gets God. That's what I'm saying. The gospel gives you God. God. And so I want you to know God through his son Jesus. I want you to know the hope that we have. Christ died for sinners and if you will ask him, he will forgive you of your sin and give you his righteousness and reconcile you to himself. He will turn his wrath away from you. From, from you. He, you will become a son or a daughter of the living God. And the time will come that you will follow him in resurrection. I am pleading with you today to believe the gospel. It's altogether and ultimately worth it. But let's move quickly then through the rest of the text. I'm not going to give you all of the various interpretations of the text. You can read about them if you want. But within the context I will tell you what I think the text is saying, bringing us to our second point, the resurrection of Christ, proclaiming his victory. That's what I think is going on here. So verse 18 said he suffered by dying, being put to death for our sins so that he could bring us to God, but he didn't stay dead, hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what Easter is all about. The end of verse 18 says he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He was crucified and died, but he was raised to life. Yes, both bodily and spiritually. We could say he was put to death in the realm of the flesh, in the realm of the physical of physical things, but he was made alive in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of spiritual things. Again, yes, of course, it was a bodily resurrection, but it's a new and much better body that is predominantly spiritual. Now, this clearly speaks, I think, of his resurrection. Now, some want to suggest, a la the Apostles' Creed, that during the three days between his death and resurrection that he went to hell and and proclaimed or preached to the spirits. I actually think it was after his resurrection. There's nothing in the text that indicates he went to hell between his death and resurrection, So after his resurrection, in some way, he proclaimed to the spirits. When when used in this way, this word spirits almost always refers to demonic spirits, which fits the the first part of verse uh, 19, in which spiritual realm Jesus went. Same word as in verse 22. That's important because I believe we're talking about the same going That is his ascension to heaven. So after his resurrection, in his ascension, in some way, and for some reason, he proclaimed his victory to the spirits in prison. Which spirits? Well, these spirits were long ago disobedient in the days of Noah. This is where it gets extremely confusing. So let me just sum up in a couple of sentences. I could go go on for hours. You know that's true. Sum up in a couple of sentences what many commentaries say convincingly. There is a book called First Enoch. It's not part of our Bibles. It's not inspired text. But it was very influential on Jewish thinking of the day. And it says that these spirits or demons were disobedient in the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 when they had relations, physical relations, with human women. These demons inhabited uh, men. They had physical relations, and as, as a result, the, the entire world became exceedingly wicked, and they were then thrown into a spiritual prison awaiting future judgment. This is what First Enoch says. Peter is not giving credence to the story necessarily. He's simply saying that Jesus, in his resurrection and ascension, somehow proclaimed to these spirit, spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Let me come back to that uh, in our third point in just a very quick moment. Because, you see, mentioning Noah caused Peter to remind us of some very important truths as we are becoming a suffering minority. He says this, Noah and his family, eight in total, were a significant minority in a very evil world. During that time, as the ark was being built, 100, 120 years, whatever, while the entire world was evil, God was patient. And we read elsewhere that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, proclaiming the destruction to come. He was calling for people to repent. Obviously, few did just as family, so also readers in Asia Minor, and I'm suggesting readers today, we are in the minority and becoming more so. As we live in an increasingly hostile culture, we will become more opposed and oppressed, perhaps smaller and smaller in number. You see, it's no longer popular to call yourself a Christian. It should not surprise us as it becomes less popular to be a Christian that more and more are leaving the faith or proclaiming to be atheistic or agnostic. Here's the question. Will that affect your faith? Does it require the majority of people uh, to believe before you will believe? Does it require an easy life of respect and acceptance before you will believe? Noah was no doubt ridiculed and oppressed, yet he pressed on, and very few were saved because narrow is the road that leads to life everlasting. God was patient, but when it was time, judgment came through a flood And through that flood, eight people were brought to safety. Verse 21, that flood serves as a type of the safety through which we will be brought if we believe. The the, the waters correspond to or are a type of, could be translated, baptism, which is a proclamation of faith. And through the waters of baptism, through your faith, this public proclamation, you too will be brought to safety. I think too much of the time we separate our salvation from this public proclamation that is made through, ba- uh, through baptism. I don't think that Peter is saying that baptism itself saves you. He goes on to say, baptism does not remove dirt from the flesh, but rather it is an appeal to God, better a pledge to God that you believe and will follow Christ through a good conscience, a conscience that God cleanses through the work of Christ. And notice that last phrase, we are saved through the resurrection of Christ. That middle part of that verse is actually a parenthetical. Take it out and it says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our faith in Jesus that saves But baptism is an important part of that as we publicly proclaim and pledge to God that we will follow him. I'm out of time, but quickly notice the last verse and how Peter wraps it all up. Having spoken of the resurrection, he reminds us Jesus then ascended to the right hand of God and, and has gone into heaven This is a reference to Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. There we read, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter says to these suffering believers, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven after angels, that's probably fallen angels or demons and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. He is the Lord of the universe, seated at his Father's right hand. He is in control. When had they been subjected? At his resurrection. After Satan, um, uh, uh, after, after Satan, I mean, after Jesus was um, bruised on the heel, he crushed Satan's head. At his resurrection is when Jesus subdued all powers. Clearly, this is a, an already not yet nature uh, of this subjection. Yes, the enemy of our souls still prowls or, around seeking those who, whom he may devour, uh, chapter 5 will tell us, but, but I've heard some say this way, he's on a leash, because he has been ultimately defeated. Do you think this would have been an encouragement to those who were being mistreated, oppressed, persecuted because, uh, because of their faith? Do you think this can be an encouragement to us today as more and more are deserting the faith? As we are becoming an oppressed minority? Do you think this could be an encouragement? I want you to understand that all authority has been given to the Son. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, Romans 8 says. We need not fear those who oppress us, those who oppose us. We need not fear the futility of this creation when things don't work rightly. God is in control. All enemies are under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, which will happen at the resurrection of all those who believe in Jesus. You see, he's paved the way. Through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, he has then proclaimed victory, and it is for all those who believe. And so my simple question for you today is, have you believed? I invite you to do so.